friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I've invited my good friend Mary Rice Hassan, who is the Kate O'Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and also doing amazing work throughout the country as director of the Catholic Women's Forum. She happens to be one of the smartest women in America, in my opinion. So she's here with me today as we look more deeply at the political field right now. We have had some amazing wins uh, for life, considering that we have just elected 14 pro-life females to Congress. But first, today I've invited Father Benedict Keeley to come and talk with us. He is an expert on Christian persecution in the Middle East. He is the head of Nazarene.org. He is on the front battle lines helping those most afflicted for their faith in every corner of the world, especially including the Middle East. In fact, that the Pew Research Group just released a study on persecution of all religions being on the rise. We want to get his reaction on that as well. And also, we want to ask him about with our new president, presumably our new president, even though we're still in a, a bit of an indecisive period, what is the what is it going to look like? What is religious persecution going to look like under presumptive Biden presidency? Welcome to the show, Father Ben. Thank you, Gracie, for having me again. It's wonderful to be with you. I sort of threw the kitchen sink at you and the, you <laughs> and the refrigerator. Yeah. I'm, feeling, I'm feeling battered, yeah. I'm feeling battered <laughs> with all those kitchen implements. But anyway, you are an expert on Christian persecution. Why don't we start by you reminding our listeners uh, about the the foundation that you founded. What is the good work that you do? Well, Nazarene.org was founded really at the end of uh, 2014 with the expansion of ISIS and other Islamist terrorists throughout the world, but especially the Middle East. And we've been helping now five plus years helping Christians stay in the Middle East, especially in Iraq and in Syria and Lebanon. Now we've managed finally to get help to families in, in Syria and Lebanon, which is wonderful. And basically we just mini microfinance to help families stay. Some people say it's a drop in the ocean, but I think when you think of one family uh, being a drop in the ocean, it's worth having that drop in the ocean. You keep one family in their homeland, they're Christians, you give them money to start a business, they don't just take charity money, and then, then they begin to have a life and have some dignity. So that's the main part. And the other part is what I'm doing in a sense with you now is, uh, as a priest, my ministry is to speak, to preach, to write, to talk about the worldwide assault on Christ and his church, uh, not just by Islam, but of course by uh, other religions and of course the new religion of uh, rampant, blatant secularism, which is what we're probably going to speak about a bit uh, in this interview with what's what may happen in the United States. Father, why is it important for Christians to stay in the Middle East? Why should we Christians over here care whether they emigrate to a great place like the United States? Uh, well, because it's not just the birthplace of Christ, it's the birthplace of Christianity, of the church. I'll never forget, which is why I care so much about Syria. Way back in 2014, I met Archbishop Jean Bart, who's the Melkite, Greek Catholic Archbishop of Aleppo. He was living in that city, which was being bombed continually for five years. He stayed with his people, a true shepherd. And I remember him telling me then, we are the first Christians. We are the first Christians. And of course, it's true. And so, of course, we care about them. And it's important because they need to be in the Middle East. There are, there are 11. Christians are uh, a link, a, a, a bridge, in a sense, between Islam and other cultures. And there are people of peace. The Christians in the Middle East, for centuries, have, well, we should care just as much as we would hope they would care about us if we were being persecuted. And imagine if we flip the, the question we were being persecuted in the Middle East and you were asking a Syrian, why should we care about Christians in the USA? Mm -hmm. Well, we care because they're our brothers and sisters, you know? I mean, one day that might be the case. One day we may be being persecuted and we would hope that Christians in other parts of the world would care about us and do everything in their power. So um, it's critical. It's, our, it's, it's the land of our, it's the cradle of Christianity. Um, and we must care about Christians continuing to live in those beautiful lands. I have to admit, Father, that it 
wasn't a, a long time ago that I that I realized what it means to say that that uh, the Middle East is a cradle of Christianity. I I have this. I had fallen into that error of thinking of the Middle East as as a Muslim place. When the truth is that Islam erupted up upon the scene in 600 A.D. It was a Christian heresy, and and it took over land in an aggressive form, and and, and over the over the area and over people's minds and hearts. But those Christians that exist today in the Middle East are, we can trace them all the way back to before 600 AD and all the way time, all the way back to the time of Christ. And maybe that sounds simplistic to our listeners, but I think for me, it's sort of down that that information dawned upon me sort of recently. And I think it's, it's very not, interesting it's not, and it's a beautiful way to think about our brothers and sisters there. Yeah. And it's not simplistic because, unfortunately, many uh, Arab Christians and Middle East Christians laugh because they get asked by Americans or even uh, people in Europe, "Oh, when did you when did when did you receive Christianity? Did did the did the missionaries bring you Christianity from, <laughs> from America?" And they say, "No, we've been here for two thousand years." And they have. I mean, it's the apostles brought the faith to to Iraq uh, and Jesus himself walked in the in the sands of Lebanon and Syria we know that we hear it in the in the scriptures and um, as Archbishop Jean Bart said to me that they were there on Pentecost day when the mm -hmm. church was founded so no they, they brought us the faith not the other way around and uh, and it's it's so important to remember that 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 culture is 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 ingrained yeah Islam is is a much later usurper of of the native people's land and, and culture. So it's critical for us to remember that. I also like what you said a moment ago about Christianity being a leaven uh, to the area, to the region, to the people, a, a religion of peace, um, uh, an oasis of sanity and the insanity of the the, the terrible internecine wars, no? the, the battles uh, amongst the Muslim groups, the different Muslim groups. Yes, uh, you are right. This is why it's tragic, again, for, for Christians to leave, because uh, not only are they often the educated class, are the doctors, the the nurses, the dentists, um, but they they are. They're a real bridge. And they, of course, one of the things people forget is they educate many Muslims. Christian schools, Catholic schools run by the nuns in places like Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq don't just educate Christians. Many, many Muslims. Muslims send their children to these schools. And so if all that goes, again, that what's left is this vacuum that will only be filled, unfortunately, by hostile ideology. So it's, it's, that's another answer to your original question of why it's important, because Christians can be people of peace. Everyone always brings up the Crusades. That's the sort of last resort of the scoundrel who, who can't win an argument. They bring up the Crusades. <laughs> well, yes, hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of years ago, Christians ne not necessarily did good things. However, you do not hear today about Christians uh, chopping people's heads off or, or, or doing any of these things. Christians are really sadly the weakest people in the Middle East now. Really, no one is there to help them, which is also why we must do our bit. And are Christians the people who traditionally uh, run the hospitals and the orphanages and the houses of care for people who are poor. Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing. This is in, in Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, all across the Middle East, in Egypt. This is what you find. Christian orphanages, schools, uh, universities, Bethlehem University. They're, they're just all over the Middle East, and they've been there for so many hundreds of years, um, dwindling. I, I read just the other day, I, I think the figure is true, and if it is true, it's very worrying that Basically, 90% now of the Christians have left, either been driven out or left the Middle East. And so we're looking at, in Iraq, certainly it's gone down dramatically since the first, since the war in 2003. There's probably, from more than a million Christians in Iraq then, that's down to really about 200,000. That's, that's probably the real figure, which is just stunning. And where are they going, Father? Well, the countries that will let them in, I mean, this is where one has to be a little bit political, I'm afraid. And even with the present administration, we're going to get into, onto what the 
possible new administration might do and the previous Obama administration. But even the Trump administration, unfortunately, has not been open to receiving Christians. We know the Obama administration received many, many Muslims and not many Christians at all. So they're going, for example, when I was last in Iraq last year, many people were telling me they're going to Australia. Australia has been quite welcoming. Um, Canada. Um, unfortunately, many are stuck in, in camps in places like Lebanon and Turkey, where life is very, very difficult. That must be but absolutely miserable for them. It is totally. In fact, it's so miserable that some of them were even leaving the camps to come back to Iraq because it was so horrible. But I would hope that any administration Democrat or Republican would be open. I always use the term, rather than just saying Christians, we should use the statement victims of genocide because they, they've been classified, Christians and Yazidis and others have been classified as victims of genocide. Why would we say no to receiving victims of genocide. That that should be the way it would work. And if we just say Christians, people always get annoyed and angry, but as though we're just prioritizing them. I think if we say victims of genocide, then we are dealing with Christians, Yazidis, and some other groups who've been uh, so terribly treated over these last few years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we're talking about Christian persecution all over the world, but especially in the Middle East, with Father Benedict Keeley of Nazarene.org. Please make sure to go to his website and see the good work that, that he is doing with, as he was telling us, micro micro assistance to, to, to families and individuals, Christians in the Middle East, get, allowing them to, to get their feet under them and, and support their families and stay in that very important region. So, Father, very, very recently, the Pew Research Center uh, released uh, a new report tracking government restrictions on religion, and they noted that there was a 50% increase in 2018 since the survey's inauguration in 2007. Now, that's, that sounds pretty, pretty heinous, and, and we do hear about terrible things going on from China to the Middle East, and now with COVID, um, I feel, and I, I even feel it in my own country, that there are that there are um, the governments uh, are taking advantage of the COVID situation to to uh, enhance restrictions on religious worship here in the United States, but I'm sure religious all sorts of religious expression all over the world. Yes, it's very worrying. I mean, I hate in some ways it's awful because I always seem to have to come on and give bleak news, and, and uh, even though there are little tiny points of light sometimes, but. There are. Um, it's 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 very worrying that across the world, uh, persecution in some shape or form, whether it's just governmental restrictions or active persecution, yeah, it seems to be increasing. China is horrendous. The the restrictions, the surveillance, total. China's the awful image of what really could come to the whole world. The total surveillance state, uh, the perse the persecution of. Um, religious minorities, the Uyghur Muslims who are being persecuted terribly in concentration camps, but Christians are being dramatically persecuted. And you also, they, you bring up um, the total surveillance. They have this now, China has the ability and, and is tracking all their citizens and especially watching um, what kind of religious observance they do. If, if they do yes. religious observance, it's very scary. We're seeing so much now, even here in the United States, um, attempts to, to really survey the population and, and all our actions. Yes, I hate to sound like a conspiracy crackpot, but... <laughs> Well, people don't real people don't realize, Gracie, that both of us are wearing a, a tin foil hat at the moment. <laughs> to the rays of the, but no, we have to be we have to have a sense of humor. But yes, it's 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 increasing the the, the civil liberties. Uh, it's extraordinary. I think COVID has revealed uh, something very deep uh, that in so-called liberal democracies. Um, it's it's pretty quick to remove our religious liberties, our general liberties. I've just returned from the US, U.S. and I'm now in what's called isolation in England for 14 days. We're technically not allowed to even go outside the house. Otherwise uh, known as house arrest. Well, effectively, it's house arrest. But more worrying is um, mass, public mass again, has now been 
halted. We're told it's possibly going to resume again at the beginning of December, but then we heard again today that possibly now it might go through Christmas. Singing is not allowed in church. Can you imagine Christmas without singing carols? You know what I'm. You know what I'm really worried about, Father. If these uh, one and now two vaccines, which are showing a lot of promise, once they're distributed and they're not going to be a hundred percent effective, and I feel that people are wanting one hundred percent assurances that you're going to walk out on the street and and have Christmas dinner and not catch COVID, and I think that that's just never going to be in the cards. And maybe governments are going to use those small risks to to enforce uh, different things that that seem important to them, but that well, are. You're a doctor, Gracie. I mean, you know far more than I do. And uh, all I know is we've had a flu vaccine for I don't know how many years and people still get flu. Uh, it's a golden calf. It really seems to be with the lack of faith, people need this assurance of 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 lack of lack of mortality. <laughs> they think that the government will make sure we don't die. Well, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. The, the one thing for sure about every human is they're going to die. Now, obviously, we have to be <laughs> sensible and we have to be serious. We have to be sensible. We take precautions. But at some point, we have to get on with life. Uh, I was talking with our friend, in fact, who may be on your show, I believe, Edward Penton, the, the great EWTN Rome correspondent, just, just a little while ago. And in England, they've been talking about what's called the blitz spirit the blitz is of course during the second sure. world war when we were being bombed there was a spirit of everybody being in it together but edward reminded me of course the blitz spirit was about getting on with things it wasn't about hiding it was about getting on with life that was the real blitz spirit that people actually went to the pubs even though a bomb might drop on the pub and they went to church. There were no church closures during the Blitz. And this links with my work with the Middle East. I've been in the Middle East uh, when the possibility is that uh, ISIS could walk in and, and set off a, a bomb in the sure. church. And yet the church is full. People come to Mass with the knowledge that possibly that might be the last mass they ever t attend on earth. Um, so we've got to shift our minds, as I said, without being silly, without being uh, having a bravado that's that's silly, but we must get on with life. But the governments, the governments are, someone once said, governments very quickly take away your freedom, but they don't often give it back very easily. So we've got to, especially in the United States, that champion of liberty, your country is built on religious liberty, freedom. And why will we happily, seemingly, let that be taken from us? We must fight for our liberty. Absolutely. I, I feel that during the the run-up to the election, the idea, and, and too many too many media outlets, um, was to ramp up people's fear over COVID. And I, I think to 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 harm the chances of President Trump for re-election, here being a super cynic. Uh, but now I do agree with you. I think that some governors and, and maybe our next president uh, will have a difficulty giving back our freedoms now that they've had that taste of, of control and being able to, to decide our lives. Um, but Father, talking about uh, the man who will probably be our next president, Joe Biden. And I say probably because um, the election hasn't been certified, as all of America knows, the longest, it's not the longest election process yet, I don't think, but it, it does feel really long. Uh, and if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are our new president and vice president, we need to think about what this will mean for persecuted Christians, for religious liberty here at home and all across the world. Have you thought about this and what do you project? I have been thinking, and once again, I, I hate to be the bearer of bleak news, but I think the only way one can do it, A, A yes, it's hypothetical still uh, about who will be the president, but it certainly seems probable. Um, one can only go on past experience. I think that's the way to look at it. And if you look at the Obama administration, which Vice President Biden served under and worked with, it wasn't good for religious liberty. I, I predict that um, religious liberty uh, worldwide will not be a priority of the U.S. government, of the U.S. administration. I think direct aid, for example, which the Trump administration was quite a, a major change, giving direct aid to Christian charities, NGOs, for example, in Iraq, was a massive 
uh, change and, and a great help, that will probably stop. And also, minorities, uh, the, the phrase minorities will be used a lot. Uh, and unfortunately, I think Christians will go back into, into the background. Minorities will be, fo it'll focus a lot more, for example, on LGBTQ rights. It will focus more on uh, women's rights, which are fine, but as long as that's understood in the, in the right way. Um, Christians, I think, will go on, on, the, on the back burner. And it was a very interesting Justice Alito, Justice uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito, just the other day said that religious liberty seems to be becoming a second tier right, mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating. And yet it's the first and greatest freedom. It's the first and greatest freedom which America was built upon. Um, and I think we need to be vigilant. That's the word vigilance. Um, and I, my personal thinking is that Congress is going to be much more important now. It's going to be up to individual congressmen and women, senators, especially some of the great new bunch who've been elected who are practicing Christians and Catholics. They're going to be the ones who are going to have to fight for religious liberty and especially for persecuted Christians if the administration begins to push them into the background. So I'd encourage all the listeners to, to, be, to be vigilant themselves but also to be speaking to their new congressmen and women senators um, to, to make sure that this is an important issue. Uh, there are a lot of Americans, many, many millions of Americans of faith who, who understand the centrality of faith in people's lives all across the world. Unfortunately, I agree with you. I, I think um, our new administration, if that does indeed become Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, are going to have trouble understanding how important faith is and, and how we have to, as Americans, stand up for that freedom, not uh, of re that freedom of religion, which, as you say, is the first freedom not only in our own country but in other countries. I think that a lot of the people, the oppressed people of the world, look to the United States um, as as a help, Absolutely. and Absolutely. and they depend in their hearts uh, and sometimes effectively. It's right? uh, the U.S. has always been a beacon, a, a shining light, uh, and um, that would be very tragic to see that slipping away again because well for for all its faults and one can't again be too partisan saying that the, the trump administration was perfect because it was far from perfect however there was a real shift in emphasis uh for religious liberty and it seemed to become a, a major priority of the administration and i think um what worries me is as well the, the lower levels of government the so-called deep state again without being a, a conspiracy theorist there are many career politicians career administration people and they were blocking a lot of this this is this is factual um they were blocking a lot of the moves to help religious minorities and they will be in the ascendancy again and i think we've got to be that's why i said to repeat myself to it will be up to congress to make sure that, that this stuff is pushed because it will be very very easy to we've already seen what what the new administration says it will do for example with life issues just basically reversing everything that the trump administration which is just a well scam. joe joe biden has promised to keep harassing the little sisters of the poor for not providing for not wanting to provide abortifacient uh, contraceptives to their employees. I mean, this is a man who says he's a solid Catholic. People are calling him a solid Catholic, but he doesn't have much pity on those poor nuns. He's a solid Catholic from the 1970s. He's not a solid Catholic of the 2020s. Uh, our young people now really know what. In a way, without being too personal, in a way, Joe Biden is an image of of the dying Catholicism of the 1960s and 70s that that's not rooted in, in all the values that we know are true. And um, that's the, that's when we're looking for something hopeful. I'm very hopeful when I look at young Catholics now, young Catholic families, people you know, people I know, uh, your own children, children, I, young people I meet. These are young Catholics who have been properly formed and life is central. Life, defense of life from from uh, conception to natural death is is is. There's no 
there's no seamless garment i mean that's the critical that's the first stitch of the of the seamless garment and if you don't if you tear that then everything else falls apart so um, and also father young catholics who understand the value of religious liberty they understand that the that the beautiful beginning they were giving they were given in their lives at home and at, at their parish school and that with their with the wonderful upbringing they get it with their priests and nuns None of this would be possible in a land in, in the United States uh, if the United States stops respecting the primacy of religious liberty amongst our freedoms. Absolutely, and, and these things can slip away very quickly. That that that's back to our earlier point that we can wait, wake up one morning and suddenly things we took for granted have disappeared. That's perhaps maybe one of the lessons. We have to always look at the spiritual reasons for things and people are asking, well, why did God allow COVID and all these other things? Perhaps God is, is not that he sent us COVID, but we have to look at what spiritual lessons we can learn. And maybe one of them is, um, for Catholics uh, certainly, how we maybe took things for granted with the mass, with uh, the ability to just walk into church and pray, mm -hmm. with the ability to just go to confession whenever we want. You know, when that's taken away, when the, when the door is slammed shut in front of you, um, you wake up one morning and you cannot go to mass. Um, maybe God's telling us all that we need to shift it up uh, quite a few gears in terms of our own personal commitment to the faith. Well, on those wise words, Father, I have to close, but can you please tell our listeners how they, um, how they can learn more about your organization and how they can help? Thank you, Gracie. Well, just go to our website, uh, nazarean.org, N-A-S-A-R-E-A-N.org, and uh, you get all the latest news, and I do a little gospel uh, meditation every week for those who follow us, or a little four-minute gospel meditation, and um, just pray for us as well. Please pray for persecuted Christians. I ask every time, pray for persecuted Christians, and bless you all. Thank you, Father. Hope to see you soon in person over here uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. And may your, um, your house arrest go peacefully. <laughs> Thank you, Gracie. Bless you. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Now for the rest of the show, we'll have my good friend Mary Rice Hassan, who is the Kate O'Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and also doing amazing work throughout the country as Director of the Catholic Women's Forum. So she's here with me today as we look more deeply at the political field right now. We have had some amazing wins. Uh, for life. But of course, we have Joe Biden being our presumptive president-elect alongside Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. We do have some concerns as Catholics. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, Mary. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be speaking with you again. So we have a lot of things that are a little negative to talk about, <laughs> but why don't we start with the positives? We have an amazing crop of strong pro-life women that have been elected to the House of Representatives. What do you think about that? I think this is a fantastic thing for the pro-life movement, for women, and, and for our politics, really, because one, there's uh, strength in numbers to have such a group, you know, coming in together at once gives them sort of a, a power. You know, I heard one of them say on the news the other day, like, we're the real squad. Yeah, <laughs> we're the, like the new voices sometimes can really command press attention in a different way. They can express things in a different language or, you know, just putting a different face on the issue. So, so that's, that's one aspect. Second, I think it just reinforces the point that pro-life is a winning message. And this is something that anyone who's conservative or Republican or who cares about that issue needs to realize this is not something to, to soft pedal or to hide or to have to qualify. This is a winning message. And so to see these women coming out with unabashed 
putting this forward is a tremendous thing. And then the third thing I would say is the fact that that we have so many women, new women who are pro-life, I think really provides a counter-witness and a contradiction to the left's narrative that women can only be equal and be full participants in the society, in the culture, if they have abortion as a backup and, and the power to be to to get rid of their pregnancies, to in other words, to participate like men do. But to have these women saying, we're here, we're going to make a difference, and we're pro-life, and that is such an essential part of who we are, I think is a powerful message. Mary, when you mentioned that pro-life is a winning message, it made me think of how interesting it is that Trump made so many gains amongst minority voters. I was thinking in particular mm -hmm. of, of Hispanics like me, and I think that one of the things that resonated with Hispanics and other minorities was the pro-life message, mm -hmm. and also that one thing that, that turned them off was the complete underwriting of abortion by, by the Democrats. I think in the past, because the Republican Party, while it has had pro-life planks in the platform, and you had many leaders who were personally very much in the pro-life camp, it was not front and center in the way that President Trump made it to be. And so I think the fact that he was unapologetically pro-life makes a tremendous difference because it gives people confidence, but it also serves to elevate the issue in people's minds. So you have Hispanics who have long cared about this issue, but if you're not hearing it much from one party that's supposedly pro-life, I don't know that it inspires the same confidence. So I think it, it really was a game changer that, that President Trump was not just consistent about carrying through that message, but he was willing to be a voice and a face for this message, from appearing at, at the March for Life to raising the issue just consistently over and over. He's educating as he does that as well. So I think that's been a tremendous plus that helped to reach many of these other voters who, while they shared that sentiment, weren't hearing enough of it from the Republican side. And yet we've had sort of the foil effect from the Democrat side where they have in that same time span gone all in at promoting abortion. So it's not the safe, legal and rare that we had under Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton and, and things like that. It, it really has been abortion for nine months for any reason. And I think that, again, makes people People focus on it and say, wow, does that represent me? Nah, that's that's not my home anymore. Mary, I wonder, as we are looking now at the presumptive Biden and Kamala presidency, Biden-Harris, I should say, I'm saying presumptive because at the time of this, them with recording this, the election hasn't been settled. How concerned are you about this coming administration being able to peel back some of the great strides we've made in the pro-life camp in the last four years? I am very concerned. I think we're going to see it from day one. Well, actually, we're seeing it, you know, again, this is presumptive because it, at this point, the Electoral College has not voted and, and all those things. But we're seeing the people who are being named as potential cabinet appointees. It's a full pro-abortion slate. So that in itself is worrisome. But we're also seeing some of the plans coming out for the first hundred days, which is, you know, many administrations, when they come in, that's such a time where they're riding the, the wave mm -hmm. and they try to accomplish as much. And to see as part of that, that initial policy push, we're going to see efforts to undo the pro-life policies. So, for example, the Mexico City policy, which often shifts back and forth, and, and that has prohibited uh, U.S. international funding of organizations that support abortion. And well, and actually over history, it's prohibited funding for abortions overseas, but the Trump administration made that even more targeted and said, if you are an organization that with your own money supports abortion, you're not going to qualify for this international foreign aid. Oh, well, I remember the howls of rage from the abortion, mm -hmm. the international abortion lobby. They were very upset about this, and I was extremely happy. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm and I'm talking to Mary Rice Hassan. She's the Cato Byrne Fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mary, you wrote a book with uh, your sister, Teresa Farnan, um, called Get Out Now, about the ideological warfare over our children's souls at public schools. And mm -hmm. it's a great book, by the way. I, I recommend it to all our listeners. I've noticed that maybe they 
have floated out in the media a couple of choices that Joe Biden might make for the Secretary of Education. And maybe this is just um, gossip in the media and this isn't true, but I heard the names of women who are very high up in the teachers' unions. Mm -hmm. That was very, that was terrifying to me because I'm the mother of a parochial school child now, but I've had five children go through parochial school. I've been the mo- mm-hmm. I've been a mom at the same school for 23 years. I think they're going to give me a little me- um, a plaque when I leave. <laughs> um, but the whether our parochial schools survive or not could depend on the goodwill of whoever. Joe Biden appoints as education secretary. Yeah, we've already seen that with some of the the over COVID relief money, where the Democrats and particularly at the the behest or, or under the influence of the unions, the teachers unions, have been reluctant to provide funds towards supporting students and their families when these kids attend non-public schools, whether private schools or parochial schools, and they have the same needs as children who are in the public schools to adapt and to be able to have equipment or or whatever they need in order to do the virtual classes. We saw a lot of antipathy and resistance towards serving those children because the unions so strongly resist any funds going to someone who's not in the public school world. Why? Because then they're they're controlling it, right? If it mm-hmm. goes through the state education apparatus and, and through the you know the, the public school system, it, it's the unions are have tremendous power, as we've seen, you know, in terms of, of them refusing to go back into the classroom in spite of parents' wishes and in spite of doctors' reassurances. So it is very problematic. And I think we're going to also see not just a squeeze in terms of reducing the availability of vouchers and and things like that, things that typically have been helpful to Catholic schools. But we're also going to see some additional policies in terms of Title IX and how Title IX is enforced so as to promote the LGBTQ agenda, but also it's going to put a squeeze on on faith-based organizations because under the Obama administration, when they put in some of these onerous regulations through Title IX, universities, for example, had to apply for an exemption to say, we're not going to be rooming person who identifies as a trans woman, but is really a male with women in our women's dormitory. But they had to apply for exemptions for things like that. So the fact that you would have a Department of Education that is suddenly going to be promoting this agenda and at the same time hostile to religion and to faith-based and conscience-based objections is really troublesome for those of us who have opted to educate our children in other ways. Well, it's terrifying because we see then that it's people with money who can protect their children from damaging, damaging ideologies. But the, yeah. but the poor and the, and the working class mm-hmm. can't protect their children because they are they have to send their kids to public schools. And now I'm, we're watching in so many jurisdictions across the country, private schools, parochial schools, who, who really operate on a shoestring budget compared to the public mm-hmm. schools, are open. Their children are coming mm-hmm. to school. They're taking all the, all the necessary precautions and they're being very successful and the public school down the street uh, remains closed you know nine months nine months into covid well i think it's that contrast has been helpful for many parents to really think twice and say you know i want my child educated if they're not willing to educate my child i'll I'll go where they will and then to look again or maybe for the first time at a catholic school and and to realize how much of a a better education and, and greater environment that's going to be But, you know, I want to raise up one other uh, point that I'm very concerned about under a prospective Biden administration. That's this. With the public schools in many, particularly urban areas, but even increasingly in rural areas and and other parts of the country, you're seeing a push for school-based health centers, medical clinics. And we saw that with the Obama administration. They spent a lot of money to promote that. And why is this problematic? Because in the past, we've seen those centers being places where a child would go and the parents will sign the permission because they want their kid to be able to get Tylenol or, or you know, a strep test or maybe a, a vaccine shot or something. But in those clinics, they will also dispense contraception.
abortion and they will refer for abortions or whatever according to the state law. But increasingly, we're seeing movement in the states to allow those school-based clinics to refer for, quote, gender dysphoria or gender treatments. So imagine you have, uh, you know, let's say a Catholic family who is working class, they have their kids in the public school, they feel like, okay, I know these people, I trust them. But then a school-based health clinic comes in, takes up space within that school, they're going to cut the parents out of the equation. So if a child goes there and is confused or seeks mental health counseling, that child could be referred for gender, quote, treatments, or could be counseled in a way that suggests to them that they're transgender and that that's the source of their depression or, or whatever. And all of this can go on within the school without parents knowing. So we've seen Washington State, in fact, has has taken steps that way, the same with California. But I worry that we're, because in the past, under the Obama administration, we saw this tremendous push and money to support school-based health clinics. I'm anticipating we're going to see the very same thing uh, under a Biden administration, but with the added danger that these clinics are going to not only be pushing contraception, but they're going to also be putting kids into that transgender funnel. It's amazing to me when we think about how we take parental consent so seriously in every other aspect Mm -hmm. of our children's lives. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as it becomes a question of sexuality, we cut the parents out of the equation. You know, the other day uh, we have a new, we got a a COVID puppy and because my little girl was, you know, a little sad about not being in school and not seeing her friends. And it's been delightful, but I have to go to the veterinarian all the time because she needs her shots. Mm -hmm. And the other day I had my husband pick up the puppy from the veterinarian and they refused to hand the puppy over because he wasn't on the list of people allowed to pick up the puppy. Oh oh my goodness. And it made me think, you know, we're so careful about our puppies and the, you know, the control that the owner of the puppy has on the puppy. But what about our children? This is very shocking Mm -hmm. what you say, Mary. It's terrible to think that this will be maybe potentiated on steroids in a Joe Biden administration. And you know what's interesting, Gracie, too? These initial laws that came into being on the state level to allow for, for example, underage kids to receive treatment for sexually transmitted infections, those exceptions to parental consent came in out of concern for, quote, public health. They were worried that if you if you have a whole bunch of people with sexually transmitted infections who are not getting treated because they're afraid they're going to be, mm-hmm. their parents are going to be told or whatever, that's a disincentive to treatment. And then we have a bigger public health problem. Sure. Well, in fact, STDs and STIs have continued to rise because when you encourage sexual activity, you're, you're going to end up with that no matter what. But there was at least the attempt to justify that circumvention of parental consent. I think it was wrong, but there was at least the attempt to justify that under a public health exception. There is no parallel to that in terms of allowing someone in that school-based health clinic to begin counseling a child to reinforce gender dysphoria, to, to put them in the trans pipeline, to encourage them to, or maybe begin to treat them with puberty blockers or something. There is there is nothing. There's no statutory authority. There's, there's no public health justification. So this is pure ideology, kind of riding the coattails of this exception that was crafted decades earlier, and again, on, on sort of a flawed basis. But this is just, there's going to be no check on it, because you're not going to have the political will among those who could exercise some control over that. It makes me really sad. So it is scary. It makes me very sad for the poor and and for newly newly arrived immigrants, for people who don't Mm -hmm. have a way to defend themselves. When I think of something happening like that to my child, I say, well, my children have a mother and a father who are fully engaged Mm -hmm. and educated Mm -hmm. and professional, and we can go and make a fuss, and we can even pick up and move if necessary. But, you know, know, we're not stuck with Mm -hmm. with what the culture gives us. We can make choices. But that's not just not the case for so many. What do you think people can do in the face of a, of a coming not pro-life administration and not an, mm-hmm. an administration that doesn't understand religious liberty the way we do and things like family mm-hmm. and human anthropology? What can we do as just as people trying to get along and protect our families? I think a couple of things. One, pray. We always have to certainly pray for our leaders, those who are entrusted with the power of leadership, but the great responsibility of leadership and pray for a conversion of heart. Pray for courage on the part of 
those other elected officials or people who are in a position to push back on a policy level, that they will have courage and the clarity and the strength of their convictions to do so. But for us personally, as Catholics, as parents, we need to, one, educate ourselves if we're unsure of what the church teaches on on relevant issues, but then have the courage to speak the truth, because there are many people who are sort of silent observers saying nothing and are unsure. And if we continue to say nothing, then they will be formed by the witness that they see, the public voices that they hear, which unfortunately in this case is going to give a deformed witness as far as the Catholic position on life and protecting life and the dignity of life. And so it's going to be all the more important to have Catholic voices speaking up with clarity, with charity, and with courage. Oh, that's wonderful advice to end on, Mary. Thank you for joining us. And where can our listeners learn more about your work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center? Well, I'd like to encourage them to go to our new website, which is personandidentity.com, which has information particularly on the question of Christian anthropology, but gender ideology and the whole transgender issue. So that's an issue that we all need to educate ourselves and our children about. And so the personandidentity.com website should be able to provide some good resources and uh, give people courage. Thank you, Mary. Thanks so much. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Christ the King wants to have with each of us this Sunday. The Solemnity to Christ the King is, by the standard of church history, still a very young feast, only 95 years old. It was instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925, in response to the rise of communism, fascism, and aggressive secularism, all of which were trying to eliminate Christian influence in the society to be supplanted by communist, fascist, or secularist pseudo-religious ideologies. Pope Pius XI stressed both the importance of Christian believers influencing society for the good, as salt to the earth, light of the world, and leaven, but also cautioning them to recall that Christ had not come into the world to inaugurate a political, but a spiritual kingdom. That's a lesson Pontius Pilate didn't get when he asked Jesus whether he was a king. That's a point that most Jews didn't get when they anticipated the long-awaited Messiah would rule in the way that his ancestor David had ruled, defeating all foreign powers and triumphing over all who opposed him. That's a truth that not even the apostles grasped as they jockeyed for the choicest cabinet secretariats in what they presumed would be an earthly administration. The king we celebrate does not fit into any of these earthly categories. St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, Christ the King, even though he was in the form of God, didn't deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human appearance, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to death, death on a cross. Christ's whole kingship is caught up in this saving service until death. Whereas most terrestrial kings have slews of servants caring for their every need, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Whereas earthly leaders regularly sacrifice their subjects as soldiers for their personal royal aggrandizement, Christ the King came to die for his subjects, to give his life as a ransom for the many. That's the king we fat. That's the kingdom he established. That's the way we're called to reign with him. The gospel for the feast, Christ the King identifies as someone who hungers and thirsts, as a stranger, as someone naked, imprisoned, or sick, as someone suffering or in need, says that whatever we do to anyone in these circumstances, he'll take personally. These are not just words for Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, for example, he himself was needy in all of the ways he described. He was hungry and cried out, I thirst. He was stripped totally naked. He was a stranger even in the world he created, kicked out of his own city of Jerusalem to die as a malefactor on Golgotha. He was sick and wounded having had his flesh ripped open by the brutal Roman scourging, having been beaten and crowned with thorns. He was imprisoned not only in the high priest's dungeon, but pinned to the cross not by chains but nails. The more we look to him on his throne of the cross, the easier it is for us to see in his sufferings the sufferings of his mystical body. Just as it shocked the people 2,000 years ago that 
Jesus crucified was really king of the Jews. So people remain shocked that Jesus humbles himself to identify personally with the littlest ones and make them ask us to make ourselves their servants. But he wants us to grasp and live this lesson, that to enter his kingdom, to reign with him, we must like him serve and lay down our lives in love of the poor, the outcast, and the weak. God's kingdom is ultimately one in which we care for each other, inconveniencing ourselves and sacrificing ourselves for each other's welfare. Jesus tells us that when he comes at the end of time in his glorious king to judge the living and the dead, he'll separate us into two groups as the shepherd separates sheep from goats. This division will be as stark as the separation between light and darkness and truth from lies. He will place a sheep, the saved, on his right and the goats, the accursed, on his left. Then he will say to those on his right, among whom, God willing, we hope one day to be numbered. For as hungry and he gave me food, thirsty and he gave me drink, naked and he clothed me, a stranger you welcomed me, ill and you cared for me. Those who are saved will respond, in effect, Lord, when did we do any of this for you? And the king will reply, Whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Jesus did not mean to give us an exhaustive list of good deeds or even very hard things to accomplish, like giving away huge sums of money or doing extraordinary acts of heroic sacrifice that one day will earn us a Wikipedia page. He gave us six, six simple actions that any of us can do and have the opportunity to do almost every day as a sign of what he's asking. And he said that that is the path for us to inherit the kingdom prepared for us since the foundation of the world. But he also said that it's possible to fail this final exam of life when some will hear those horrible words, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who will hear those words are not necessarily people we would call evil. To some, they might even seem holy. By their question to the king in the parable, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or stranger, ill or in prison and not attend to your needs? They imply that had they known it was the Lord in these conditions, they would have spared no effort. But because they were only seeing a nobody, they did nothing. The great test of our love for God is our love for each other especially those people who are challenging to love. Dorothy Day once said, We love God to the extent that we love the person we like the least. St. John wrote in his first epistle that we cannot love God, the God we have not seen, if we don't love the brother or sister we do see. Jesus wants to help us to grow in the capacity for love by making it easier for us, calling us to treat others the way we would treat him, since he presumes that if we knew we were caring for him directly, most of us would give it our best. The single most important decision of our life is to serve or ignore Christ and our brothers and sisters. Our judgment will be nothing more than a revelation of how we've used our freedom to live by Jesus' words. So it behooves us to ask, when we see someone who's hungry or thirsty, do we try to help get him food or do we tell him to get a job? And since Jesus identifies with the hungry, is it enough for us to wait for somebody who is starving to approach us for food? Or do we go out in search of Jesus in the disguise of the man or the woman or the child with hunger pains? Do we welcome strangers or do we resent their presence? If we would never deport Jesus or the Holy Family or forcibly separate the infant Jesus from Mary and Joseph, can we look the other way when that is clearly happening at our borders? Do we clothe the naked? Or do we take advantage of their nudity through pornography? If we see someone without a jacket or shoes or a winter hat, will we ever give ours? Do we give preferential care for those who are sick? Or do we ignore them lest we catch what they have? Does it bother us that people don't have health care? Do we pray for those who are incarcerated, even those on death row? Or do we clamor for their death like the mobs called for Pontius Pilate to give Jesus the death penalty? When we examine our consciences on the basis of the gospel, probably most of us can recall times when we've really lived up to our call as Christians to serve the least of our brothers and sisters with Christ-like love, but also some explicit occasions when we stiffed a homeless person, refused to open our heart to a family member or colleague who really needed our help. The Solemnity of Christ the King is an opportunity for us to ask for Jesus' mercy so that we may begin to carry out better the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. He, our King, has never failed to care for us in our need. To all of us who are hungry, he gives his own flesh to eat. To those of us who are thirsty, he quenches us with his own blood. To those of us who are ill and afflicted, he comforted us by joining us to him in our suffering. To those of us imprisoned by sin, he not only visited us, but freed us from our cell, breaking down the bars once and for all and showing us the way out. Jesus fulfilled each of these corporal and spiritual works of mercy by giving of himself in love. This shows what the fulfillment of human life is, to give ourselves in sacrifice for God and for others in such a way that this self-giving 
becomes the gift of Christ himself to others through us. We're called never just to give bread or water or medicine or clothing. We're called to give ourselves together with Christ. This is the way Christ's kingdom will reign in us. This is the way our prayer will be fulfilled. Thy kingdom come. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 